0: Hey, you're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast
1: where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and once again, I've managed to find you an awesome guest to listen to an interview of today. We have Dr. Caroline Tiddy who is an associate professor in geosciences. And a coordinator of education and training at MinExCRC. Welcome to the show, Dr. Caroline. Thank you very much, Amelia, and thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Hopefully, starting with an easy question. What is your
0: job? Oh, my job. An associate professor in geosciences, as you said. At the moment, I'm based in the Future Industries Institute at the University of South Australia. And within that, I am heavily involved in the MINEX CRC, which is the Mineral Exploration Cooperative Research Centre, and that's basically a big research group across Australia. And what my job is, I'm a geologist, one of the few geologists at the University of South Australia actually, and within that position or the the part of geology that I'm involved in is looking at developing technologies that will allow for faster and cheaper and more environmentally friendly mineral exploration so in doing that what i do i'm involved with a project that is developing sensors that will allow for collection of geochemical data so basically chemistry of the rocks whilst we are drilling so whilst the drill rig is actually drilling a hole we'll actually be able to get that data really really quickly which will be a bit of a game changer compared to what we do these days, which is you drill a hole, you collect a sample, you send it off, you know, the geologist might log that sample, it gets sent off for assay, and then three months later the geologist might finally look at that data, but they've already moved on in what they're doing. So they'll only be looking at that data really retrospectively, whereas what we're doing is trying to develop technologies that will enable that geologist to have that data immediately, which means they can make critical decisions really quickly whilst a drilling program is being undertaken. So they could make decisions such as they're drilling in the right area or maybe they need to drill to the north or the east so they'll actually be making smarter decisions about where that drilling will take place. So that's one aspect of what I do within that in the CRC. And the other aspect of my research within the CRC is understanding that when we get that geochemical data, we can produce reams and reams of geochemical data, but we need to know what to do with it. So the other part of my research is that I look at how we can use geochemical data to start to point towards where an ore system might be. So in particular, I do that for looking for iron oxide copper gold deposits So trying to understand what the chemistry of those deposits is. When you do have an interesting chemistry, then what types of minerals is that interesting chemistry host within? How can we identify that chemistry quickly and easily? And how can we identify those minerals quickly and easily so that we can actually make really informed decisions with the data that we'd get back from the sensors that we're developing? That's part of the the research that I do within the CRC And then the other part of the research that I do in my job is all about uh, diversity. And so I have a project that's looking at the challenges and enablers of women to reach leadership levels within the geosciences in industry, academia, and government. And so I'm doing that with some colleagues of mine from UniSA Business. So we have people who are, one of my colleagues is an entrepreneur type researcher Another colleague is a gender diversity researcher and then me as a geoscientist. The three of us are working together to really try and tackle that issue from a different perspective by working together in, in a project and I can tell you more about that later on as well if you like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that last bit <week> was terrible.
1: <laughs> no, 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 you're doing well. You' There's a lot of complicated things you're trying to explain. <laughs> Have you covered everything you wanted to say about your job?
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the, the three parts of the research that I do. So that's a lot of things. Yeah, it is.
1: I'll have to come back at you with a couple of questions, but starting with possibly the baseline thing, are you able to explain what a CRC is? Because I think a lot of listeners may not have come across them before.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So CRCs, to me, are a massive opportunity. So CRC stands for Cooperative Research Centre. MINEX CRC is the third CRC that I've actually been involved in through my research career. MINEX CRC is a 10-year project. It is running from mid-2018 through to mid-2028. It's the world's largest effort into research towards mineral exploration. It's a $218 million venture, uh, which is huge. So the way that CRCs work is that they are funded by the federal government under the CRC program, and they involve a collaboration between academia, uh, government, and industry. So we have that funds that come from the federal government, but then we also have funds that come from industry who are supporting the CRC and who want to see that research go ahead. This CRC involves seven universities across Australia. It involves CSIRO, Geoscience Australia, which is the federal geological survey within Australia. It involves each of the state and territory geological surveys across Australia. It involves some major mining companies uh, such as South 32 Anglo-American BHP And it also involves some junior exploration companies, as well as a bunch of service provider companies. So these are companies who are interested in commercializing the types of technologies that we would be developing within the CRC. That's kind of the nuts and bolts of what a CRC is. So within Australia, there are, oh, don't quote me on it, but I think there's about 33 active CRCs at the moment and each of them will be addressing one of the major science issues that the federal government sees is pertinent to Australia for one reason or another
1: it's amazing thinking that you can get all of those very different organisations with very different sort of drivers and measures of success and everything sitting around one table that's a pretty impressive situation
0: <laughs> oh yeah so minex crc took about three years to come into fruition. Before that, we had a CRC called Deep Exploration Technologies CRC. That was an eight-year CRC. And again, that took about three years to actually get off the ground. But yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of personalities. There's a lot of people with different motivations, different drivers, Different walks of life that you actually have to get together around a table to agree to one vision to actually create a CRC. So they're a huge effort. It is. It is impressive. I would
1: have thought by now, and obviously I'm wrong because there's a CRC to prove it, but that we would have a fairly good idea of what minerals are where. Like people have been looking at minerals and rocks and all sorts of stuff in the dirt and soil for a (laughs) long time, how much is there left to find?
0: Wow, a lot. That's a really interesting question, really, because within Australia, we're a really, really fortunate country. So we have the world's largest lead zinc silver ore body, and that was Broken Hill. We have some of the world's largest gold deposits, so they are over in Western Australia in Kalgoorlie. And that kind of area. We have world class iron deposits up in the Pilbara and through the Hammersleys. We have the fourth biggest copper deposit in the world and the fifth largest gold, I'm going to say, but I could be slightly wrong on that. But that's in uh, Olympic Dam in South Australia. So we are a country that is extremely well endowed with these world class. Always. And by world class, I mean, they are some of the biggest in the world. That's why we call them that. They're they're the kind of deposits that that make a company. Uh, So they're called tier one deposits. So for instance, Broken Hill deposit was discovered in 1883 by Charles Rasp. He was just walking along the surface. Just, of course, he wasn't walking underground in 1883. And so he's walking along and he just kicked a rock and he went Oh that looks interesting. I'm going to assay it. And he assayed it for tin and nothing came back. And then after a while, he um he looked, was kind of thinking about this gunji rock and he got it assayed for other elements. And that was the discovery of the Broken Hill lead zinc silver ore body. And that was the beginning of uh, Broken Hill proprietary BHP. And that company has been going ever since, as we know, because BHP is one of the biggest mineral exploration mining companies in the world. So those kind of, these deposits that we have in Australia, they make companies like BHP. These deposits though, like Charles Rasp was really lucky. He was just walking along and he found Gosson. And if you want to know what a Gossin looks like, just think about the most disgusting looking rock that you've ever seen. And that's a gossan which is kind of funny because they are actually worth a lot of money. So he's walking along and he just kicks this rock and he finds Broken Hill deposit. But that kind of thing, we can't do that anymore because all of those deposits that were exposed at the Earth's surface have pretty much been discovered because we've already undertaken a lot of exploration. So there's a lot of the rocks that actually host ore deposits or have the potential to host ore deposits are buried under younger cover sequence uh, materials, so they're basically barren sediments that sit on top of these old mineralized rocks, and about eighty percent of Australia is covered by these cover sequence materials. That's a lot of land, you know, a lot, a lot of air, a rock that is covered. Within South Australia, we know we've got the Olympic Dam iron oxide copper gold deposit. We've got prominent hill, we've got Carapetina, and these are all host within what we call the Olympic domain. The iron oxide copper gold deposits in South Australia are mostly overlain by young cover sediments and those cover sediments can be, I'm thinking about sort of prominent hill area, anywhere from 500 million years old through to present day. And these sediments they could only be five centimeters thick and you can't see what's underneath them there could be a huge ore body that's sitting five centimeters under the surface but unless you happen to dig that five centimeters away then you're not going to find it those sediments across South Australia that are burying these iron oxide copper gold prospective rocks they can be kilometers thick so there's this real challenge of actually being able to Undertake exploration in these rocks that are highly prospective for mineral deposits throughout Australia. And it ends up being like trying to find a needle in a haystack. But the problem is that your haystack is thousands of kilometres squared. So there's lots and lots of areas within Australia that are underexplored just because we don't have the time, the money, and the technology to be able to efficiently explore those areas. So Australia's really fortunate because there's so much potential. So there's a lot here we just have to find it. Yes, absolutely. So and that's one of the challenges of for exploration companies and exploration geologists now is actually to work out how you find those ore deposits. So until now geophysics is one way that That explorers have really tried to find these deposits. Geophysics is it's a remote sensing technique where you can actually image the subsurface without having to actually touch it. So it's a non-destructive technique. You can cover huge areas really quickly. And what you do, you can map out things such as how magnetic the rocks are or their gravitational pull. And the way that you do that, if you want to do it over a large area, is you fly an aeroplane up and down in a grid system. And it's behind it, it's dragging or it's, you know, it's pulling a magnetometers or gravity meters that will actually allow you to measure that magnetism and gravity of that subsurface. And you can produce these pictures or these maps. What they look like is basically, to anybody who doesn't know what they're looking at, they might look like some sort of psychedelic picture because they're bright reds and bright blues and, and everything in between but they tell you a lot about the subsurface geology. And so what mineral explorers will do is use those images to try and basically put an X on the on the map. And then they have to go out and they have to drill that area in order to work out whether or not their X was correct. And I don't know of any example off the top of my head where the first time a drill hole has been put in to that X marks the spot, where it's been successful. It usually takes quite a few goes before you actually hit a mineral deposit if you hit one at all. So it's really difficult to do. These explorers are looking, like I mentioned before, there's the areas are thousands of kilometres squared. The drill hole that we're talking about has a diameter of about five centimetres. So it's pretty easy to do the sums there that needle in a haystack. <laughs> And how deep are they drilling down? Uh, it depends. Well, it depends on how deep they want to drill. Off the top of my head, I would say the average would be somewhere about one and a half, two kilometers depth. So it's not super deep, considering how thick the crust is, which could be, you know, anywhere up to one hundred and fifty kilometers if you're in a mountain belt, or if you're in other areas of the Earth, it might be significantly thinner. It might only be thirty kilometers, but that one and a half to two kilometres, you're just scratching the surface really. But a one and a half to two kilometre deep drill hole, that's nothing to be sneezed at at the same time because that allows you to see or to collect a lot of sample from the subsurface for quite a depth. So if you're hitting those prospective basement rocks, you know, theoretically, you could be drilling one and a half or two kilometres into them. But the challenge is If you're drilling in an area that is undercover, so it's got those young cover sediments on top, you might have to drill down a kilometre before you actually get to those prospective and interesting basement rocks. And the cost of drilling is not cheap. So there's different types of drilling that you can do. And if you wanted to collect diamond drill core, which is tubes of solid rock, you could be talking 250 dollars a meter and when you're starting to drill holes that are a kilometer depth you know you can see where the money starts adding up there's cheaper ways of drilling so you might do air blast drilling or rc drilling but you compromise on the type of sample that you're getting back so instead of getting this beautiful tube of rock you'll get just back little rock chips and they can be contaminated in various ways because of the way that the drilling works. So it might be cheaper. So you might be talking, say, 50 or $70 a metre, but you're not getting that high-quality sample and you can't necessarily go as deep either. So there's a lot of economics, a lot of thinking about what you want to collect, why you want to collect it, and how you're going to collect it within a certain budget that you may have to undertake that drilling the economics of it is a huge challenge to mineral explorers and is actually one of the drivers of minex crc and the crc before minex that's the deep exploration technologies crc because it was recognized that the only way that you can collect a sample from the subsurface is if you drill it's the only way and That problem is that drilling is expensive, as I was explaining before. And in order to actually say, right, you know, there's definitely an ore deposit here, you need to take a sample. So if you want to test whether your target is correct and that from your geophysics and you said, yep, here you go, X marks the spot, I go and I drill, you spend lots and lots of money. But if we can work out ways where drilling is less expensive, it's more efficient, In the long run, that means we get more bang for our buck. So for our $10 million exploration program, instead of only being able to drill 15 high-quality drill holes, we might be able to drill 50 lower-quality drill holes, but we'll be able to work out a lot more information from those 50 drill holes, and when we work out where Uh, with more confidence out where our X marks the spot is, we can then come in with the more expensive drilling and drill with more confidence to collect that high-quality sample. So the need to decrease the cost of mineral exploration so that we can decrease the risk of mineral exploration and increase our chances of intersecting an ore deposit is the driver for Minex CRC.
1: Some of those numbers you just mentioned then are mind blowing. Like from the
0: age of the rock to just the cost, that is so expensive. Yep, absolutely. It's uh, yeah. Geologists have, when talking about time, we we do have a little bit of a warped sense of time. <laughs> when you say to me that something is five hundred million years old, I just go, oh, okay, that's pretty young.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that makes you a hit at some parties, though. You're you're only ninety years old. That's so young these days.
0: <laughs> yeah, very much so. Actually, I hadn't sort of thought of it in that way. But you're right. It, that actually, I should say that, shouldn't I? You know, you, you're nowhere near the and You're fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> actually, I've got a rock in my pocket that's older than you. Maybe not. Exactly, yes. And then somebody comes to you with the old trick of, oh, I've got a rock here to identify, and they put it in front of you, and it's a piece of bitumen that they've picked up and they're trying to catch you out. It's like, nah, come on. You can do better than that.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. That's hilarious. People's sense of (laughs) humor. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have
0: a favorite rock? Oh, you know what? I probably have the lamest rock collection for a geologist. That's because I just I just can't decide to be honest and the I do have a couple of rocks in the yard and I suppose my favourite one of those, so it's not my favourite rock type, it's more that it's my favourite piece of geological material that I have because it's actually a big mineral, it's a big piece of garnet. So garnet is, but some people would know it from jewellery because it's a red gemstone and the garnet that I have is not gemstone quality. It's about 15 centimetres length and it's about or oh, 10 centimetres width. It's actually quite what we call euhedral, So that means that it has the shape, the natural shape of the mineral. And it was collected from Broken Hill actually. And that is definitely my favourite piece of rock that I have out in the backyard. So yeah. They they don't get it. They're only eight and almost six, and they don't quite get it yet. (laughs) Oh, really? I would have thought they'd start to—they'd be hitting the rock-loving phase. Yeah, they do. So they love rocks and stuff, but they don't understand why I get so excited about the fact that this is a a massive piece of garnet, and they just see it as this really pretty-looking red rock. But they don't kind of understand that it's actually just one mineral, as opposed to lots of little bits put together. And that's what I find really cool about it is that it's just one solid piece of garnet.
1: It might be a bit like dark chocolate or something where you have to
0: develop a taste for it. I'm sure they will. They'll get there. (laughs) I'm certainly working on them about it. And we do, I will admit, take them on walks in the bush and they're constantly, they do actually bring me stuff and they say, oh, mummy, look, I found this. I found this little piece of rock, and I say, "Oh yes, that's a piece of quartz, or that's a piece of feldspar." You know, can you say that word? And I always get them to name it because I'm trying to get those mineral names into their vocabulary. Or if we're out in the Adelaide Hills and we see, you know, a really nice fold in a quarry or something like that, I'll, just, I'll be saying to them, "See, can you see the bendy bits in the rocks? Can you see what's going on there?" And I'll explain it to them, and I'll say you know, this is what rock type it actually is, it's a sandstone or it's a shale and sort of trying to get that education in them to start with from an early age. And they they do kind of, they look at you quizzically and then they just say, oh, okay, so how did that get there? And this kind of thing. So they, yeah, it's really nice being able to teach them about what you do. Being able to share
1: is so important. It's like the best bit of teaching, especially when you see the little spark in their eye and they're like, ah, so that means this, and you can see the connections getting drawn.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, it's brilliant. And oh, you take them up to places like the Flinders, and it's just, you can just see them just going, wow, like this just place just looks amazing. And then you can tell them something about how it formed and how different things got there, and, and you can see them just kind of, you know, the cogs are just ticking over, taking it in, maybe not asking questions until a few days later, but the cogs are ticking over and they're thinking about it, which is great.
1: They're very lucky. (laughs) We'll see if they think that in 20 years' time. Oh, no, no child does. Okay, to come all the way back, able to tell us a bit about what does an average day at work look like for you?
0: Wow, an average day at work. Well, the thing that I love about my job is that I go to work thinking I'll do one thing, and I come home having done another, and I like that. Sometimes it can be a little bit frustrating, but it's so diverse. It's quite different. It's evolved over time. It used to be that my day was very field-oriented, so I used to be a mapping geologist for a geological survey, and so I would spend a lot of time wandering around in the bush. But these days um, I actually do barely any field work at all, but I'm actually, I'm actually okay with that. I'm probably one of the few geologists who is okay with that because it makes it much easier for me to spend a lot of time with my family, so I've chosen to take my career in this path. When I am out, say, collecting samples or, or something like that, it will usually be in a drill core library. Given that my job is to develop technologies for mineral exploration, including research around drill rigs, of course I'm going to be using a lot of drill core. So, every now and again, I might be out at a core library looking at some rocks, but mostly what I do is management actually these days. So, I have a team of students, PhD and master's students, who I really enjoy giving them as much attention as I can. So, they basically get to do all of that fun data collection stuff. And I sort of swan in and a lot, yeah, a lot of my days are spent supervising them. And the reason I love supervising them is you never know what kind of curveball they're going to throw you next. They're out doing something that they love doing. And as is the nature of research, something always goes wrong and you've got to try and solve it. So we spend a lot of time problem solving. Other than supervising my students, I seem to always get caught up in a lot of meetings. (laughs) Um, But again, it's something that I really don't mind doing because you're in the meeting for a reason. You're there to either make decisions that are actually going to impact on research direction or that are actually going to influence what somebody might be able to do. So a part of my job that you mentioned when you introduced me is that um, I coordinate the education and training program for MinEx CRC. So that is our postgraduate program uh, within the CRC and Also, we have vocational educational training, uh, which is VET training. The postgraduate program is the larger part of the education and training. So over the lifetime of the CRC, we're looking to graduate 50 postgraduate students, and that is from either PhD or master's by research degrees. So at the moment, the CRC has a cohort of almost 30 students. We're halfway through the period within which we want to be recruiting our students. So a lot of my job is overseeing those students who are spread across six of the seven universities who are affiliated with MinEx CRC and working to create opportunities for them to be involved in the CRC and to get more out of their postgraduate program than they would if they were not in a CRC. So the types of things that we can do is enable them to present their research within front of the CRC community, and that's a community of, gee, 150, 200-odd people, and a lot of the people who are involved in the CRC, particularly the participants and the affiliates, these are decision-making people. They're people who sign the checks. And so we are able to create opportunities for these students to actually present their research within a really friendly environment and in front of these people who could be employers of theirs in the future. So you can really influence what can happen at the early stage of their career. And then within the VET program, which is VET is something that I've not really been involved with a lot at all until I've been involved with CRC education training programs. So Within VET, what we're trying to do is create opportunities where we can see people trained to use the technologies and systems that we are developing within the CRC. So, for instance, one of the major programs within the CRC is that we are developing a what's called a coiled tubing drill rig. So it's a new style of drill rig that could be used in mineral exploration. And we're developing this technology, but There's only two of these drill rigs in the world and there's maybe three people who know how to drill with that drill rig. Only one of those people can do it really, really well and two of them are dangerous with the rig. That's not very many. So we have to actually create a training program whereby if our drill rig actually takes off its commercial, you know, this will happen, of course, we'll always be optimistic when our drill rig is commercialised and, you know, You know, 50 of them are produced. We can't have one driller. We need to have a team of drillers who know how to use this. So we have to develop those training programs. So being part of that and overseeing how you actually create a driller training program, that's something I never thought that I would do. So it's kind of what my day to day job looks like is actually a really hard question to answer because my job is just so diverse that. It just looks different every single day. I love that. It does
1: sound particularly, but it sounds very cool and I love that the CRC is involved in developing the technology, all that sort of stuff, like cutting edge, which is kind of what you expect research to be. But there's also that level of foresight of we need people who can use the tech and go out into the field and that's going to give a whole lot of different people access to awesome careers that they might not have otherwise. And that's a really cool package, I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the drillers who would end up trained on our technologies, they wouldn't be normal drillers. They wouldn't be the type of driller who you see out there today who, these are usually really big, burly blokes. And I do purposefully say blokes because there are very few women drillers out there in industry today They are out there, but they're few and far between and absolute kudos to them being able to survive in such a a male-dominated industry. It's a very, very physical job. It's dirty. It's really long hours. It's demanding. It's stressful. And the drillers who would be on our rig would actually, they would need to be skilled in a completely different style of drilling, but also in the technologies that would go with that drilling system. So, you know, I mentioned that we're we're developing sensors that will allow for rapid collection of geochemical data. They'll actually need to know something about those sensors. So they're not only going to be drillers, they're actually going to be these multidisciplinary, just amazing people who'll be able to do all sorts of different things within that drilling system. So they'll be pretty special people. That's cool. And
1: hopefully that'll also result in a bit of a change to the industry as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. And I would hope that with these different type of technology that doesn't involve things like having to pick up three metre lengths of steel rod and lift it up vertically With a winch to help you, of course, but then screw that three meter steel rod onto the top of the one underneath, which is what happens in drilling commonly these days. The technology that we're developing is going to completely remove that part of the workflow. So the coiled tubing drill rig is basically a a 500 meter or soon to be a 1000 meter length tube that's wound around a coil. So the idea of the drill rig is that that slowly unwinds as you're drilling down and then as you pull the drill bit back up, it just basically, you just wind it back up. So you're removing a lot, big part of the physical nature of the job. There would be more diverse people who could potentially be able to do that job. So somebody who's not the big burly bloke, it might be a woman who's just not as physically big and she can still do the job which would just be amazing because it could change the industry that could be really exciting i'm excited <laughs> yeah yeah i think it, i th- i really think it would be it's it's amazing when you think about actually there's this, a similar kind of lack of diversity in places such as uh, on mine sites when it comes to driving haul trucks and it used to be this really male super male dominated industry And as those trucks have actually become easier to drive, there are a lot more female drivers out there who are out driving these haul trucks. And then when you take that and you actually start to automate that further, so, you know, you have haul trucks or mining vehicles that can actually be driven from an office that's in the city and those people are driving mine trucks or or vehicles that are out in, you know, the Northern Pilbara or something, let's say. Having that as an office-based job in a city, that actually opens that job up to people such as parents who they need to be able to, they want to be there to look after their kids. Their kids are at school or they might have young kids who are in childcare. Because that job is now based in a city, they can actually do that job, whereas they wouldn't be able to do it if it's a fly-in, fly-out job. So these technologies actually have the potential to enable diversity within that workplace. It's it's almost like I don't know whether that was the purpose of it. To me, it seems like quite a serendipitous outcome. But,
1: yeah, the change has to be good for the industry because diversity just leads to innovation and better outcomes for everyone and everything.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's research out there that proves that a more diverse workplace will actually be a more innovative and creative workplace. And if you have diversity at strategic levels within an organisation, then overall the way that that organisation will operate and its potential will actually be increased because of those diverse sets of opinions that are at those decision-making levels.
1: Are you able to tell us how you've ended up in this job? Like was geology
0: always the plan? No, no. No, geology wasn't always the plan. I did end up in this though because in high school I had a geology teacher in about year 10 who I just, I just found him really inspirational actually. He was just such a good guy. I also had a chemistry teacher who was the same and a physics teacher who was the same. I was quite lucky really in that respect. And so I went to university thinking, oh, I'm going to be an industrial chemist because that's what my chemistry teacher was. And probably of the three, he was maybe my favourite. So I went to university thinking I'm going to be an industrial chemist. And in first year uni, I needed to choose four subjects and three of them were obvious to me. And the fourth one, I just thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. I thought, oh, you know what, I enjoyed geology. I'll, I'll give that a crack and really enjoyed it. And as I went through, I didn't actually make up my mind what I was going to do until I started my master's so I went through a bachelor's and majored in geology and chemistry because I still couldn't figure out between the two got to my master's and thought I know what I'll do I'll combine them (laughs) so that's what I did and from there everything fell into place that I was going to have a career in geology The major changes came after that in terms of the type of geology that I was doing. So, you know, like many fields of science, chemistry, for instance, has how many fields of chemistry are there? You've got your inorganic and your organic chemistry and then it just balloons from there. And geology is pretty much the same. So I did a master's in metamorphic geology and geochemistry, so looking at how much rocks are buried and heated geochemistry. It's kind of a bit self-explanatory and structural geology, which is looking at how the rocks are folded and faulted. And then I went and I did a PhD along similar lines. And I always said to myself, oh, I'm not going to get into economic geology because I actually think that um, mining is not good for the world and we shouldn't be doing it. And I then worked for a geological survey for a couple of years, didn't kind of click with me. So I came back into academia. And... I remember I was standing in the pub one night and I was, I'd been doing a postdoc for a couple of years by this stage and I, I just had a thought to myself. I thought, you know what, if that person over there came and asked me what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, I can't actually give them an answer that will inspire them because what I'm doing is just all about me. So I made a decision that I was going to stop doing very esoteric science that only I cared about and that I was going to switch to doing applied science. That meant that I could tell somebody in the pub why I'm doing what I'm doing and why it matters to them. So, in making that switch, funny enough, I started looking at economic geology and moving into that kind of area of the geosciences. And that decision was actually the best decision I made for my career because it actually sparked the passion in me that has kept me going through some tough times in academia and then through the high times as well. And so in the end, I sort of ended up where I am because of that decision, I would say. What a moment to have and in a pub, insightful moment in a pub. Yeah, I know of all places, um, I suppose I used to spend a lot of time in pubs. Maybe that's why it was kind of my brain was relaxed and I was just kind of just standing there a little bit, just having a quiet moment myself. And I just thought, you know what? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do.
1: So how have you reconciled the mining isn't good for the planet with the work that you do now?
0: Yeah, that was a tough one. But in the end, I thought, you know what, we're always going to need mining. I like the clothes on my back. I like the fact that I can get up in the morning and I can eat my breakfast out of a bowl and that my breakfast is readily available. And the reason that we have all those things is because we have machinery that makes them. And that machinery come is made, is itself made from metals that we extract from the earth. So then I thought, well, if no matter what we're going to be doing mining forever, I can't see any way where we're, we're not going to be mining for metals, then we need to be smart about how we do it. As time has gone on, I've also seen that, As we move into a world where we actually want to have green technologies, we want to have our solar panels, we want to have our wind farms, that itself is increasing the demand for metals that are critical to building those technologies. So copper is a fantastic example. So when you look at copper, the, the world actually only has a really limited supply of copper remaining. With the increasing demand in copper, we only have about 20 years left. So we've got this real problem that we are going to run out of the metals that are required to make green technologies. And, you know, I would call myself an environmentalist. I'm a greenie my passion is that I love the environment and I want to see a planet that is sustainable and that my kids are going to be able to enjoy and their kids are going to be able to enjoy in future. So if we need mining so that we can build these kind of technologies, then why not make sure that we are smart about the way we undertake our mining, the way that we undertake our exploration so that we can find these metals. And instead of whinging about it, Why not be part of the solution and work out ways that we can do it better, more environmentally friendly, so that the impact of the exploration and the mining is not as disgusting and horrible as what we've seen previously. So once I started getting to that research where although it is all about finding metals, it's also got a very environmentally focused aspect to it and that's how i resolved it was actually to be part of the solution not part of the problem
1: i like it it can be a challenging one to go through but solar panels don't come from nowhere that's
0: exactly right and there's this this real disconnect between how the public sees that we get our solar panels and our wind farms how that how they get the clothes on their back and understanding that those the technologies that are required or the metals that are required to build those technologies or to make those clothes, actually comes from the stuff that we dig out of the ground. There's no way around it. It does make sense when you think about it. (laughs) Yeah. And that
1: sort of leads into the next question. Are there any kind of myths or misconceptions about the work that you're doing that you would like to take this opportunity to squish?
0: Wow, yeah, wow. The public perception of mining.
1: <laughs> that could probably be a whole podcast in itself. I'm thinking, oh,
0: absolutely, absolutely, it could be. Yeah, mining is seen as a very dirty word, and the reason that I think that happens is the media. The media loves a negative story, and there are some negative stories in mining. I will absolutely not argue with that. There's been some really questionable and at sometimes completely appalling behaviour that has gone on by mining companies, big mining companies in Australia, in Western Australia, (laughs) in the last few years. And when I've read stories about what has happened, it's enough just to make you want to cry because you just think, what are you doing? You are destroying cultures. You are destroying land. You You are destroying the environment by what you are doing. And whilst you're doing it, you are also adding fuel to that fire and we really don't need that fuel. So mining companies are not out and exploration companies, aren't, we're not out to destroy the environment. But unfortunately, there are incidences where stuff happens that I really wish had never happened in the world. And I would love that to see the media actually start to tell the the real story about what is behind mining and the efforts that exploration and mining companies go to, not only because they're required to do it by law, but because most of the people who are employed by those exploration and mining companies, the majority of the people around today where they really care about the environment and they're just trying to do the right thing and they want to do the right thing and they want to make sure that when mining is undertaken, that it's undertaken in a manner that is necessary and that is needed so that we can actually live the way that we live today. I'd really like to see that mining is a dirty word, discussed. So I don't think it'll ever be squashed, but I would like to to see it discussed in an open forum where people have the opportunity to present both sides of the story.
1: I think that's a really hard one. It doesn't help that there are some very loud players not doing the right thing. Um, it's like I get really annoyed when you see a P-plater like, breaking the law because you're like, you're representative of your group. like <laughs> you're, you're letting down all P-platers right now. And it's, it's the same thing on a much bigger scale, obviously, with mining.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good analogy, actually.
1: I always like f- tried really hard as a pea player to be like exactly on so that no one could complain about pea players. But I think the best piece of PR that I've seen come out for mining is the film Red Dog. Oh, uh, yeah. I think that brought us all a little bit of like that helped a little bit.
0: Yeah, that's one of those onion movies really, isn't it? There's a lot of layers to it. Yeah, and it does
1: tap into something in the Australian psyche, you know.
0: It does. Yeah. It's you know what? It's been a long time though since I've watched that movie, so it would be hard for me to comment on the detail of it. I need to watch it again. I'm one of those people that I can get like a half an hour or 45 minutes into a movie and go, "Oh, I've seen this." <laughs> it's, it's like but it's great on the other hand because then it's like you're always watching new movies. <laughs> It's a surprise superpower. (laughs) It is. It's like a goldfish moment all the time.
1: (laughs) But back to the the bad actors and the the media. Gosh, the media is, I mean, I'm technically contributing to the media, but I guess my takeaway for listeners would be if you can consider things with an open mind, like obviously as much as possible, like always approach situations trying to drop some of the, the bias you picked up over your life which is incredibly hard but uh, kudos for trying and just look around you and be like all of
0: this came from somewhere yeah absolutely I think you hit the nail on the head with being having an open mind it's once you sort of get people into that dogged one-minded head space you have to walk away but I think most people if you actually start to explain to them the issues around you know the example I used before of of copper supplies versus demand because of these evolving technologies, green technologies, then you can really quickly see the cogs turning and the pennies start to drop where they make these connections that otherwise they wouldn't have made if they just didn't have those kind of conversations and that in some ways it's you know the media doesn't want them to make well. That's a generalist comment, isn't it? The media doesn't want them to make because, you know, because I know so many media people.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is giving a a level of organisation and forethought. Yeah, (laughs) I have absolutely no right to give. (laughs) Moving right along, is there anything we haven't covered that you would like to touch on?
0: Wow. Yeah, I I suppose a little bit is that, The other aspect of my research is in diversity and women in geosciences and women in STEM in general. And to avoid another podcast-length conversation, I'd say to (laughs) – the thing that we haven't covered is that I really hope that we can actually make a change for women now and for girls coming through STEM in future – that we're actually creating a, an environment and within STEM, within geosciences, of course, for me, I'm particularly passionate about that one, where they can actually feel comfortable coming into these professions. And I'd love to see it that that diversity doesn't stop at women. There's a lot of emphasis these days on on gender diversity within STEM because it's the easiest one to see. You can see how many males are sitting at a table versus how many females. It's easy. But diversity has so many forms. You know, you've got your your cultural diversity, your sexual persuasions, you've got your ethnicity, your country of origin, the languages spoken. I would just really love to see that we have diverse and inclusive workplaces in the future that are actually going to really make a change in terms of the way that we think, the way that we tackle problems, the way that we find solutions. And I think if we can do that, then we've actually got an exciting future within science and STEM more generally that that people can be a part of. And yeah, I mean, that's a whole new conversation, but that's something that I'd love to see happen in future, happen now.
1: Yeah. From a selfish perspective, I'd quite like it to happen,
0: not just in the future.
1: I think it's slow.
0: It's frustratingly slow. We're tripping away sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. And that is one of the frustrations that we have within the group that I'm working with. We're a small group. There's only three of us who are really the core researchers within the project that we have. We're not, of course, the only effort into diversity within geoscience. There's a lot of effort in that space. For all three of us, it's not our core research. So there's only a limited amount of time that we can spend trying to make a difference. But the way that we can see that we can actually start to do that is by going out there and actually collecting the data and understanding what issues there are, and then getting that data into a form that can be published, not only in peer reviewed journal articles that not very many people have access to but also in places that are more publicly available and starting to raise awareness of these issues in a way that is backed by evidence so that we can confidently try and move forward with the issues that are, that are coming up in the world today because there's always going to be those people that just go, oh, diversity, what are you talking about? There's plenty of women out there, look at you. And it's like, yeah, but I'm one of 20 in this room you know, there's been situations where I've been one of 80 in a room. And it's like, that's not diverse. What are you saying to me? So if you've got that data out there to actually back you up, then you can start pushing back and really saying, these are the numbers, you cannot dispute the data. So that's the first step that I think we need to take, and we're trying to take it. And I wish you... Many good lucks <laughs> thank you.
1: <laughs> we need it. I think we really need it, so yeah, I'm sure it feels like pushing a rock up a hill, but <laughs> it's a dirty big rock at that, yeah, yeah, and it, the hill is covered in mud and it's a very slippery hill, but it'll make a difference, and you will get somewhere,
0: yeah, every little bit counts. I think it was um Penny Wong who said that at one of the international women's Day breakfast. If every one of us makes a small change collectively, we'll make a big change. So, yeah, I love Penny Wong.
1: <laughs> she is awesome. But it's not just about like refusing plastic straws and that sort of stuff. Like small differences can also be social change as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then the way we behave and in the way that we encourage others to behave, that is a way that we can have influence that people might not necessarily realize that you're having but you can have it and it can have a lot of impact
1: modeling the behavior that you would like to see others reflect i think is it's a real subtle powerful thing to do absolutely i love that that's a great way to start wrapping this up like it's hard but you will get somewhere <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely <laughs>
1: So to wrap up, do you have a shout-out, a virtual high five that you would like to give to someone or an organization?
0: Yeah, yeah, I do. I I think it's a huge shout-out to all those that I've I've ever been involved with. You know, I've had so many opportunities that have been presented to get to where I am, and it's it's not my career and development and where I am today. It's not just about me. It's about a whole cohort of people who started from my high school education through to my university days as a student where I was involved with some absolutely amazing people who still have quite a lot of influence in my life today and then through my actual professional career, um, all of those people and all of the organisations that I've been involved with have really influenced me in some positive ways. Some negative, I will admit, but there's always a way from the negative to see a positive. So that's why I very purposefully use the word positive only. So yeah, everybody in those organisations, because that's how I got to where I am, and it's and it's great. And we can continue working together and just working in, a, in an environment where you're not just here professionally; you're here with your friends and your and your colleagues, and you're just doing fun stuff, and it's good. So that's a lot of high fives for
1: us. To it give is listeners. I would like to throw in there a high five to you and also to the other people that you're working on all that gender work with, because like I said, it's hard work and it can feel fruitless sometimes, but you'll get somewhere and yeah, lots of high fives.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you very much as well for the opportunity to actually speak to you today because it's it's been really enjoyable actually. And you've actually got me thinking about a few different things, which is just, amazing. Oh, good. (laughs) I expect to
1: see like um, some really cool papers coming out in the future referencing me. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love that. I would. That'd be so funny. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Caroline. This has been, well, I think we've covered almost the entire Australian continent. So that's always a good start. So (laughs) thank you so much. Excellent. Cheerio. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this podcast, you're an absolute gem of a human being, and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au, sign up for our amazing email newsletter, and get all the download on the upcoming episodes, and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you should definitely subscribe. We're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and even Google these days. Thanks.